1: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Just a heads up before we begin, this episode contains graphic references to acts of violence and language that might not be suitable for young people. Listen with care. Previously on Very Scary People. The police arrest and interrogate the only living member of the DeFeo family, Ron DeFeo Jr. And not long after, the man who lost his entire family in a single evening became suspect number one. After hours of questioning, Ron Jr. confessed to killing them all. But then his story shifted a few times. So it would be up to a New York jury to decide the fate of Ron Jr. The trial would be the longest in Suffolk County history. And by now, the DeFeo family murders and the subsequent criminal trial was national news.
4: DeFeo admits that he killed his sister Dawn, but he insists only after she killed their parents, two brothers, and another sister.
3: It's October fourteenth, 1975, nearly a year after the murders of six members of the DeFeo family in Amityville, New York. Ron DeFeo Jr. sat in county jail in Riverhead, New York, awaiting his trial. After an arraignment and a grand jury proceeding, his time in criminal court had come. Today, Ron Jr. would finally come face-to-face with the judge and jury in the people of New York State versus Ronald DeFeo Jr. Inside the courtroom, it was tense. Peggy Jambra never imagined she'd be here. In the jury box beside her fellow citizens, determining the fate of a man accused of brutally murdering his family, a man who had insisted he wasn't fully aware of his actions that night.
5: It would be a lot easier for me to admit that I killed everybody in the house and I was stoned on drugs. I don't know what I was doing because of blackouts. And it would have been a lot easier and that would have been the end of this.
3: Peggy was a brunette in her mid-twenties and had never been to court before being called to jury duty in today's trial. She was a secretary and happily married. Her only courtroom exposure came from watching Perry Mason, that fictional criminal defense attorney from the Earl Stanley Gardner novels and the TV shows that followed.
6: So I grew up watching Perry Mason, and it was just a very different experience where Everyone who was called in to testify, they were not sitting in the courtroom. They would come in from the outside. And I thought, oh, that's how it really works. So I found it fascinating.
3: There were quite a few elements of this trial that wouldn't end like a Perry Mason episode, Peggy would soon discover. As she watched Ron Jr. enter the courtroom, she realized he was nearly her age.
6: I wanted to believe that he wasn't responsible. Because he was one year younger than I was. So all I could think of was, you know, he has his whole life ahead of him. I hope that he didn't realize what he was doing.
3: But Peggy knew she had to set her personal feelings aside. She had a job to do. She couldn't show any sympathy for Ron Jr. She had to focus on the task at hand listening to hours of testimony and sifting through evidence like gruesome snapshots of the six departed DeFeos to determine Ron Jr.'s fate.
6: I took a pack of peppermint lifesavers and put it in my pocket that day. (laughs) And I figured, in case I feel nauseous, I have my peppermints.
3: The pictures were graphic and depicted bloody murder scenes from 112 Ocean Avenue. They were hard to look at, not something you'd see on daytime TV.
6: But again, it was part of my job to do it, so I did it.
3: And day after day, Peggy had a front row seat to the spotlight that had been fixed on Ron Jr.'s criminal trial. It would last seven weeks. More than four dozen people were called to the stand. And at the end, Ron Jr. would testify. Sitting in the courtroom, which was now packed with spectators waiting for the final act of this show, sat Ron Jr. He had long hair, the kind that was in style in the mid-70s. He had a mustache that he sometimes tugged at. A lot of people might describe him as a hippie. When he finally took the stand, Peggy and the other jurors had so many questions, questions they hoped would at last be answered By Ron Jr. himself. From HLN, this is Very Scary People The Amityville Murders. I'm your host, Donnie Wahlberg. This is Episode 5 The People versus Ronald DeFeo Jr. It was a highly anticipated trial, heard at the New York State Supreme Court building a looming column structure in Riverhead. The media covered the trial day in and day out. And from day one, walking into the courtroom with his lawyer, it was clear that Ron DeFeo Jr. was a bit off. He seemed blasé about being on trial for murder, disinterested in the whole affair. Each day, he wore the same outfit, green pants, brown shoes, a green houndstooth jacket, In a yellow shirt that remained open at the neck. Journalist Laura DeDio was there.
7: In the courtroom, they cleaned him up, but he would also sit there staring straight ahead. He would glare at people. So I referred to it at the time as Charles Manson Light because, of course, Charles Manson made sure, you know, he glared at people. So Ronnie would also do that with his friends. He would try and adopt this tough guy persona. You know, don't mess with me, I'm going to get you.
3: Ron Jr. was up against a tough-to-beat indictment, six counts of second-degree murder. And Gerald Sullivan, the assistant Suffolk County District Attorney, wasn't messing around. From the minute he filed the indictment and entered the courtroom, He insisted Ron Jr. knew exactly what he was doing when he killed his entire family. And beyond that, Ron Jr. knew what the consequences were of his actions. Sullivan was a shrewd prosecutor. He knew how to win a case, so he kept things light in the courtroom, endeared himself to his audience, the judge and jury, even sometimes made Judge Thomas Stark smile. Ron Jr., on the other hand, remained unfazed. It was unnerving, says journalist Laura DeDio.
7: And the jury took note of all of this, too, um, with with the trial. These were all middle-class people, some blue-collar workers, some white-collar workers, six men, six women.
3: Makes you wonder what Ron Jr. thought the purpose of this trial was. Did he really want to be found innocent and walk free?
7: He was, you know, he was in court and he was just... Adopting his, his attitude, I'm cool one day, you know, I'm big, bad Ronnie DeFeo Jr.
3: Maybe he thought if people saw him as emotionless, they'd think he couldn't possibly have committed this heinous crime. But instead, Ron Jr.'s aloof attitude in the early days of the trial just seemed to unsettle the people who could determine his fate, namely, the jurors who'd been assigned to his case. Remember Peggy Jambra, the brunette Perry Mason fan? She was the youngest juror.
6: I don't remember when I got the notification, but I remember the day that I was leaving the house to go to, you know, the courthouse, and it came on the radio that they were picking jurors that day for the DeFeo case. And I remember turning to my husband and saying, ''Oh, no, I'm going to be on that case.'' (laughs) And he said, now, what are the odds? But (laughs) there I was.
3: The first day of the hearing in 1975, Peggy felt uneasy about being in the same room as Ron Jr.
6: And, you know, because he had the right to be there. And it was just, I had never been in a courtroom before. So it was a little, I was a little nervous. I was 25 years old. He didn't look like this mass murderer. And... You know, I took the oath that I wasn't biased either way, and I wasn't. And I just said, let me listen and see what the story is.
3: Peggy took her juror duty seriously. In this criminal trial, she didn't let what was being printed in the newspapers or shown on TV sway her thoughts. Her job was to remain impartial, to hear and consider the facts from the prosecution and the defense. She was so earnest about honoring her solemn pledge to the people of New York that she had her husband cut the articles about the trial out of the newspapers so she wouldn't see them.
6: I didn't want to be influenced by anything. So after it was over, he had this whole, you know, (laughs) this whole box full of newspaper articles.
3: Ron Jr. had a hard time finding the right team to defend him. The court would appoint him a lawyer and he would immediately find a reason to fire them. Lord DeDio says he even went so far as attacking one of them. But finally, the clerk of the Suffolk County Court assigned Ron Jr. an attorney that stuck, William Weber, of the law firm Frederick Mars and Bernard Burton. The firm was based in Patchogue, Long Island. Weber was different. He was affable and confident. No one knew it at the time, but Weber would play a profound role not only in the outcome of Ron Jr.'s trial, but in the future of that house where the horrible murders happened at 112 Ocean Avenue. In the legacy, you could say, of the Amityville murders. Here's Laura.
7: William Weber was extremely energetic, and he did more in the first couple of days than Ronnie's prior court appointed attorneys had done in the months before the case. He was a bit more respectful of William Weber. Maybe he thought he had a better shot at getting off.
3: Right off the bat, Weber came in with what he thought was a strong strategy, an insanity plea. Weber thought this was the strongest approach to convince a judge and jury to grant Ron Jr. a lighter sentence. Being found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder would certainly put him away for life. If his defense team could prove that Ron Jr. was suffering through a mental health crisis the night of the murders, maybe he wouldn't be judged so harshly for killing his family. And it could potentially get Ron Jr. real help.
7: So William Weber, the defense attorney, was trying to establish Ronnie was insane. He didn't realize what he was doing. The prosecution's defense witnesses said, no, he knew what he was doing. He's not insane. They said he had um, an antisocial personality disorder, meaning he didn't like people. But he wasn't Norman Bates.
3: Norman Bates, that serial killer with split personality disorder from the film Psycho. But the prosecution wasn't buying the insanity defense. And their rebuttal was simple. Ron Jr. knew very well what he was doing. They were determined to prove Weber wrong. So they called a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Harold Zolan to the witness stand. In his testimony, Dr. Zolan said Ron Jr. was a person with an antisocial personality. But the psychiatrist made it clear that Ron Jr. was an adult with the capacity to know the difference between right and wrong that he understood the consequences of his actions. But Weber wasn't going to give up that easily. So he called a forensic psychiatrist of his own, named Dr. Daniel Schwartz, to testify. Dr. Schwartz described Ron Jr. as a paranoid psychotic who didn't know killing his family was reprehensible. Here's Peggy.
6: They were trying to show that he didn't know what he was
3: doing. He didn't know what he was doing, would be the defining argument of the trial. As the psychiatrist testified, Ron Jr. just stared ahead, uninterested, disengaged. When he did speak up, Ron Jr. would contradict his lawyer's argument that he was psychotic or mentally ill. Here's author Rick Osuna.
4: It was very, very bad theater acting. Um, But then he would let it slip, like, no, I'm not crazy. I, I I feel sane, you know, and, and so forth. And, and it just didn't seem like the defense really knew what it wanted.
3: Weber's insanity plea was falling apart. Ron Jr. and his defense team couldn't get on the same page. Laura didn't buy the defense's argument at all.
7: So the insanity defense was, I guess, the best that William Weber could do under the circumstances because he has his were cut out for him, if you're one of the jurors, or the spectators, or the public. You see those pictures of the four siblings, especially Dawn and Allison. I mean, their faces were collapsed.
3: As we said, vivid and graphic photographs of the late DeFeos, Louise, Big Ronnie, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew, had been entered into evidence at the trial. They didn't help Ron Jr.'s case. So in a desperate move to save Ron Jr., Weber pivoted. He told the courtroom that Ron Jr. killed his family out of self-defense. Here's juror Peggy Jambra again.
6: But, you know, we didn't know where that came from. That was like out of the blue that it was self-defense. But we knew that it was said that he had stolen money from the, the Buick dealership and his father was going to find out. And so that was part of the motive, too, that He knew he was probably going to go to jail.
3: Remember, right before the murders, it's believed that Ron Jr. stole nearly $20,000 from his grandfather's Buick dealership in Brooklyn. Weber tried to make the case to the jury that Ron Jr. didn't want his dad, Big Ronnie, to find out that he stole from the dealership. So Ron Jr. killed his dad instead. But the prosecution poked holes in Weber's self-defense theory, too. Even if Ron Jr. had killed his father, Big Ronnie, over the 20 grand, why would he murder his mom and four siblings in self-defense? It didn't add up. Throughout the trial, it seemed like Weber was struggling to string together a coherent story about the events of November 12th and 13th, 1974. And Ron Jr. remained inscrutable. The trial went on for seven weeks. Like we said, more than 50 witnesses testified. Everyone for Ron Jr.'s relatives to inmates who knew him from his time at the Suffolk County jail where he'd spend nearly a year awaiting trial. From start to finish, the room on the third floor of the criminal courts building was packed with journalists, Amityville residents, and members of law enforcement. Even Ron Jr.'s extended family returned day after day.
6: In fact, during one of the breaks, I was in the ladies' room and his aunt walked in and, you know, like we both kind of clammed up and because we knew we couldn't talk to each other. And I just, you know, walked out very quickly because his, his aunt was there every day.
3: And as the days went on, the defense and prosecution would go back and forth presenting more and more evidence, from police photographs to the thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle that had been identified as the murder weapon. Each day, Ron Jr. would sit there and stare straight ahead. Even though his personality was hard to read, he would continue to have the occasional frantic outburst. According to news reports from the time, he threatened to kill his aunt and the assistant district attorney in court. This freaked everyone out, the jurors and the spectators, and it certainly didn't help Ron Jr.'s case. When it was time for Ron Jr. to testify he wouldn't give Weber or the prosecuting attorneys a straight answer about what happened the night his family was killed. Lord DiDio says he blamed this on his poor memory and went back on his confession.
7: Because Ronnie was saying, I don't remember, I don't remember, I can't recollect this. You know, that was, that was the testimony.
3: But then... DeFeo testified at his 1975 trial that he did kill his parents, two brothers and two sisters. Yep. When Ron Jr. was called to the stand, he admitted to killing his entire family. His mother Louise, his father Big Ronnie, his sisters Dawn and Allison, and his brothers Mark and John Matthew. Here's Peggy.
6: He never really had any affect. He just sat there until he was called to testify. And then when he testified, he got very... I think he was trying to act a little, you know, like, outraged. And,
7: you know, and he said, yes, I did it. I killed them all.
3: Laura remembers Ron Jr.'s exact words.
7: It all happened so fast. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It happened so fast.
3: Ron Jr. said under oath, he killed them all. Here he is speaking to a film documentary crew in the 90s.
5: Six people were dead. One was dead. I don't want to just come back on me. I try to conceal the crime. I was scared. I didn't want to come to jail for this.
3: And with a confession like that, jail time was all but guaranteed. It's almost as if Ron Jr. had planned the lead-up to this moment of truth. All seven weeks of confusion and chaos. Dramatic pleas of insanity and self-defense. So as he spoke to a rapt audience of engaged and concerned members of the public... He'd have their full attention. He may have been a villain, but a villain standing at the center of the stage. But after he confessed to the crime, the show was over. Ron Jr. went back to his seat beside William Weber, and the judge sent Peggy and the 11 other jurors out of the courtroom to begin deliberations.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Now that Ron Jr. had confessed to killing his entire family, the biggest question remained. What was the motive?
7: And why kill all of them? In cold blood also at, at close range.
3: Throughout the trial, lawyers seemed less focused on if Ron Jr. was the man behind the murders and more on what might have possessed him to do such a thing. It was certainly Laura DeDio's number one question.
7: I mean, if you were going to kill your sisters and brothers, I mean, you, you get that he hated the father and the mother was next to the father, but why kill the brothers and sisters? Because he didn't want any witnesses, and, but how do you do that at close range? That's chilling.
3: Laura's question is a good one. It's possible that Ron Jr. killed his siblings so that he had a chance of getting away with murder. No witnesses. But Laura has a second theory.
7: The other motive that the police, the Amityville Police Department, were developing was he wanted to kill his Father and mother for the insurance money, and allegedly, and this has never been proven, but it's always been out there from day one that they had a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars in cash in a lockbox in the house, along with jewelry that belonged to Louise DeFeo and her two daughters, Allison, who was thirteen, and Dawn, who was eighteen.
3: But here's the thing: the money and jewelry apparently kept in a lockbox at 112 Ocean Avenue, was never found in the house, Laura says. And Sullivan, the prosecutor, never brought in any witnesses who could have shed more light on this theory, that Ron Jr. might have killed his family for the insurance money, or for $200,000 in cash, or for family jewels. So the unanswered question of motive remained. After Ron Jr.'s confession, like I told you, it was time for the jury to huddle and decide on a verdict.
7: Well, the verdict, I mean, again, William Weber was facing, it was like climbing Mount Everest, okay? It was always going to be an uphill battle when you had four young people, especially three minors, shot at close range. And you're showing those pictures around of, you know, the caved in, bloody faces, brain matter, etc.,
3: The jurors deliberated for two days, pouring through the evidence and the testimony they had heard over the past seven weeks. Would they find Ron Jr. guilty on all six counts of second degree murder? At last, ten of the jurors had made up their minds. They were ready to call in the judge to deliver a verdict. Except two. Peggy Jambra was one of the last holdouts.
6: When we came to deliberate, Something stuck in my head about his dog. He did not like
7: his dog.
3: Remember Shaggy, the DeFeo's English sheepdog that was banged the night the DeFeo's were killed?
7: Ronnie Jr. did not like the dog. The dog did not like Ronnie Jr.
3: According to Laura Dedio, Ron Jr. despised Shaggy and had a history of abusing the dog.
7: And it became quite a bone of contention between Ronnie Sr. and Ronnie Jr. about the dog, because the father, Ronnie, Big Ronnie, was afraid that Ronnie Jr. was going to do something to the dog. And he very bluntly told his son, whatever happens to that dog will happen to you. If the dog ends up in the canal, you're going to end up in the canal. If the dog has a broken leg, you're going to get a broken leg.
3: So it was obvious that Ron Jr. did not like the family dog. To Peggy, this was a key detail as it related to Ron Jr.'s state of mind the night of the murders.
6: And then I said, can we hear the testimony about the dog again? So before he went on this shooting rampage, he took the dog and put the dog outside And it just clicked in my mind at that point.
3: Peggy had a flash of realization. This is why he put the dog outside while he shot his family members.
6: He knew this dog would come after him if he started going after the family. And it was just so clear to me at that moment that he knew exactly what he was doing.
7: So it finally came down to The dog, the family's old English sheepdog, Shaggy. So Shaggy was actually tied out in the shed that night. And at the time of the murder, somewhere between 3 a.m., 3.15, 3.30, the dog was howling straight for that 15 or 20 minutes that it took Ronnie to kill his family.
3: It all came down to the dog. Ron Jr. had tied Shaggy up in the shed before murdering his parents and siblings, so the dog wouldn't get in the way. To the jury, this was proof of Ron's guilt. I guess a dog really is man's best friend. Or, perhaps, a good judge of character. With that information, with the knowledge about Shaggy, the jury called the judge to deliver their verdict. It was dramatic. But it didn't shock anyone. On November 21st, 1975, just a few days after the one-year anniversary of the DeFeo family massacre, Ron Jr. was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. Here's journalist Marvin Scott.
1: So many different scenarios, but the bottom line is, Ron DeFeo was found guilty of six felony
3: murders. A couple weeks later, Judge Thomas Stark sentenced Ron Jr. to six consecutive sentences of 25 years to life each with the possibility of parole. In court, he said it was the worst crime he'd ever presided over in his career on the bench. Ron Jr. would spend the rest of his life locked behind bars.
7: Judge Stark, in his sentencing decision made it a point to say it is my recommendation that he never be released on parole because I think he will go out and try and do something again. I believe he is a clear and present and future danger to society. And Judge Stark was unequivocal in what he said.
3: So it was finally over. For Peggy Jambra, it was hard to walk away and close this chapter. To return to her regular job, to her regular life. When she finally left the courtroom, she was overcome by it all.
6: I actually collapsed in the hallway and the juror in front of me caught me before I hit the ground. I was, I was a mess. I just started crying and... I didn't know if I was crying for him, if I was crying for his family. I think I was crying for all of it, for the whole, just the horror of it. I had never experienced anything like that before.
3: And in that moment, Peggy was certain about two things. She'd never want to sit on another jury again, and she'd never regret voting to send Ron Jr. to prison.
6: I knew that he is where he deserves to be but it's still hard to think of someone that young the rest of their life, you know, being away. If it had been a a death penalty case, I never would have been on it because I don't believe in the
3: death penalty. Rick Osuna has a slightly more complicated view of Ron Jr., or Butch, as he likes to call him.
4: Butch was involved in the murder of his family. You know, he, he was guilty of that. There are reasons why, um... He participated in the murder, and you know, they, they weren't very good reasons, but he was 23 at the time. He was desperate. He was pushed to his breaking point by his father. Um, they all were. So something bad was going to happen, and the DeFeos, you know, ultimately the, the three young children paid the biggest price.
3: Six DeFeos were dead, and there was no bringing them back. It wouldn't ultimately matter why Ron Jr. killed his family. What was certain was that he was headed to prison for a long, long time. Ron DeFeo Jr. would serve his sentence at the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beekman, New York, before being transferred to the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. It's an all-male, maximum security prison, surrounded by trees and greenery. He would repeatedly seek parole and attempt to appeal his case. Sometimes Ron Jr. would say he was guilty of killing his whole family. But other times, he'd say he was innocent and that it wasn't him at all.
4: Ronald DeFeo, now 40 years old, has been in jail ever since that horror
3: in Amityville back in 1974. The longer Ron Jr. was in prison, the more his account of what happened on November 13, 1974, would shift and evolve. Nearly two decades after the mass murder, Ron Jr. claimed he didn't act alone that night. We told you that version of his story in our last episode.
6: But DeFeo's new attorney says there's new evidence that DeFeo's sister Dawn committed the mass murder and that DeFeo himself just killed her out of rage.
3: He did kill his sister. He will admit that readily, but he did that in a fit of rage after having just seen his five other family members killed. Even behind prison walls, he granted interviews to reporters. Here's one he gave three decades after being charged, in which Ron Jr. answers a reporter's questions about why his sister Dawn would have been motivated to kill.
1: You've had 31 years to think about this. Why do you think your sister would have done that?
5: I know why. hate, she hated Allison. Mm-hmm. Allison was gonna broke off to be a beautiful young girl. She hated that.
1: So you think she was jealous of Allison? I know she was. Now, why would she kill the boys?
5: I mean, think about it. How are you going to explain this the next day?
1: To the kids.
5: How are you going to explain what happened? They heard the noise. They heard the gunshots. The neighbors heard the gunshots.
1: So you think it'd be easier to explain with the boys did. My
5: mother and father, we could have got away with I mean, so many people wanted
0: to kill him. We could have got away with that.
3: During his time in prison, Ron Jr. made friends with another inmate named Daniel Janice.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel Janice. I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, and I'm an ex-con.
3: Daniel's nickname was the Apologetic Bandit because he would rob people and then end up saying sorry. Go figure. Anyway, Daniel came from a pretty stable middle-class family. His dad was a writer and his mom worked for a bank. As a young boy, Daniel spent time at Amityville. Daniel was almost 30 years younger than Ron Jr and had grown up hearing old wives' tales about Ron Jr.'s home on Ocean Avenue. How it was haunted, possessed with demonic spirits. The story stuck with him for years. Daniel fell deep into drug use in college. He says that two years within graduating from NYU, he had a full-blown heroin addiction.
0: A year after that, my credit cards ran out, and I still had a $100 a day heroin habit. Uh, being naive and a uh, bit of an amateur, I, I decided well, what else could I do but, but would try robbery.
3: Which is how he earned his apologetic bandit nickname and wound up in prison, where he encountered the man at the center of all those childhood rumors.
0: I happened to be on the Medline and I stood behind them every day for a long time. The Medline is where nurses dispense medicine to inmates. He had been pointed out to me by then, completely unrecognizable from the uh, pictures I had in my mind of what Butch DeFeo looked like, because Ronnie DeFeo looks like a small, skinny, ill man at this point. Daniel often saw Ron Jr., whom he calls Ronnie,
3: picking up a prescription for OxyContin.
0: Everywhere where, where Ronnie is described as a violent, temperamental, dangerous kind of guy, now, he was fairly high-strung and hyper, but he posed absolutely no threat at this point. Uh, I mean, he's quite short, he's quite slim, and he's unwell. Uh, it's a little unclear what he's, what he's sick with, but his medication is 10 Oxycontins a day. So he, he chews them up in the clinic and walks out of there zonked. When
3: Daniel realized this was the Ron Jr., the face of a mass murder he'd heard so much about, he was anxiously looking for an opportunity to talk to him. I guess to Daniel, it felt kind of like running into your favorite movie star at a restaurant. It was nerve-wracking, but he knew he had to say hello. But he didn't know how to break the ice in the medline. He couldn't just start talking about the murder straight away. He wanted Ron Jr. to trust him. He wanted to show Ron Jr. that they had something in common.
0: Uh, So eventually, I weaseled up to him and and, and said, Ronnie, you know, I've been in your house. It looks a little different. And he said, what do you mean? What do you mean you've been in my house? Who are you? I said, I'm just another prisoner like you. But when I was young, I used to spend my summers in Amityville, Long Island.
3: Daniel told Ron Jr. about the time he and his friends decided to check out 112
0: Ocean Avenue for themselves. And we swam over the canal one Halloween night to go take a look at the devil's room under the stairs. I was 13 when I did it, and I was 27 when I was talking to him. So years and years had passed. But it gave me a way to start talking to him. And I spent the next three years occasionally, uh, maybe once or twice a week, having a 15, 20-minute long conversation with him uh, in the medline. Ron Jr. seemed
3: interested in striking up a friendship of sorts. And he opened up a little bit to Daniel. Soon, Daniel started to feel like Ron Jr. was just a regular guy. They sort of built a bond. Daniel felt connected to him.
0: Kind of forgot that this man was accused of killing his entire family. He was just a nice older guy from the same town that I knew as a, as a kid. My grandparents have passed on, so for me it's very pleasant nostalgia to talk about Amityville. Perhaps what sticks out the most was the last day I spent with Ronnie where he seemed to admit his crime uh, and then immediately tell me that I misunderstood him.
3: Daniel was two weeks away from being transferred to another facility, so he pressed
0: Ron Jr. for more details. And I said, uh, maybe you want to tell me what really happened? It was hard to even understand what he was saying. He mutters when he talks. He um, has a big beard, so you can't even see his mouth. But he seemed to be saying, ah, fuck it, they had it coming. And I said, what, what? They had it coming? So you, you, did, you did do them all, huh? You, you killed them all. He said, well, I'm not saying that, but I'm not saying I didn't. I said, so what is it? Did, did, is it dawn? is it the mafia, or is it you? He said, I, don't worry about it. So he kind of said one way, and then he took it back.
3: So maybe Daniel didn't get new information about who was responsible for the murders that night. But he felt he had uncovered something else. Outside and inside the prison walls, Ronnie had fans, fans like him. And the story of the DeFeo murders was evolving in an unexpected way.
0: Ronnie DeFeo. There is a community of people who are really into him. So what does that mean? First of all, there's buyers of artifacts, Ronnie DeFeo artifacts. Every time Ronnie went to a visit in prison, he would have to leave his ID card with the cops. When he would leave To uh, go back to the cells, the cops would say, hey, sorry, we lost your ID card, but you don't have to pay $2 to get a new one. Just tell Joe, uh, we got you. And he would go get a new ID card. This is because of eBay, because those ID cards are worth enough money on eBay that uh, the the cops would pocket them and, uh, and sell them. Daniel says
3: Ron Jr. embraced his newfound fandom. He even went so far as selling locks of his hair by mail. Once, he even let out a big breath into a plastic bag and shipped it out in a manila envelope. Ron Jr. also had a new hobby in prison. He began painting. And yes, people bought his paintings
0: too. That's an unpleasant fact of life, but there's enough morbid people in this world to spend good money on on things like this. And Ronnie has no problem benefiting from that.
3: In prison, Ron Jr. was a hotshot. He was a celebrity, and he knew it. But over time, the outside world forgot about Ron Jr. Back at 112 Ocean Avenue, where all seven DeFeos once lived, the Dutch colonial home was returning for a second chapter.
2: Everything points to one thing,
5: that that house was infested by something that comes from the
3: bowels of the earth. The only thing about that house that's haunted was Ron DeFeo. He's the haunted individual, not the house. The house would become a bonanza for moviegoers and crime junkies. It was a character unto itself, one that played the starring role in many books and movies about the occult. You're probably familiar with them.
6: So much of the story's facts have been overshadowed by eerie fiction tragic murder became a never-ending series of haunted house movies
3: the idea that 112 ocean avenue was haunted came about in part by a seance that was held in the amityville home the seance would reveal something about amityville that felt unfathomable and rewrote the legacy of the infamous house
5: The story got bigger and more embellished. Ghosts flying
7: to levitating, to doors flying off hinges, to demons, to satanic forces. When you hear this, it's, it's incredulous and unbelievable. But they were very convincing in telling the story. But whatever, this story was, we were going to cover it. Everybody loves a good ghost story.
3: That's next time on Very Scary People. Very Scary People, The Amityville Murders is hosted by me, Donnie Wahlberg. It's a production of HLN in collaboration with Neon Hum Media and is based on an original series created by CNN executive producer Nancy Duffy. At CNN, our senior producer is Sabina Ryman. Our producer is Allison O'Brien. And our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Alexander McCall leads audience strategy for our show, And Jameis Andrist designed our artwork. From Neon Hum Media, our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Kate Mishkin is our producer. And our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Navani Otero. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Theme and original music composed by Asha Ivanovich. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Tara Lawrence, Michael Reyes, Courtney Coop, Tamika Balance-Kalasny, Ashley Lusk, Robert Mathers, Christian DeChateau, Lisa Namoro, and John Deonora.